Today is Wednesday, December 27th, 2017. Time for episode 40 of the Barnhart Podcast. Merry third day of Christmas. That's right, you haven't missed Christmas. It goes until February 2nd. And that's good because I haven't started my Christmas shopping yet. And uh, we've got just over a week until we exchange gifts. How about you, Anne? Have you gotten a start on your shopping yet? Haven't even started yet. Haven't even started yet. Kind of waiting for the uh, the sales to really kick in and waiting for them to really get desperate and for some of those clearance prices to to show up. But I think I'll probably I think I'll probably buy a present or two tomorrow. Just kind of knowing what my schedule is. Well, and uh, being the last show of 2017, um, we'll be looking forward to obviously doing a whole whole mu- whole bunch more shows in 2018. Uh, it's been an interesting experience doing this podcast this year. And um, we're not wrapping it up. I think we're kind of just getting started. So um, definitely, I would say there's a much better chance of, of me launching my podcast in 2018 than 2017. So I'm definitely, I'm looking forward to that in terms of uh, New Year's resolutions. That's about one of the few I've got right now is launch another podcast. Uh, but in terms of uh, Christmas price shopping and whatnot, in, ter- in, ter- in terms of volatility and price volatility, something that's been in the news recently is Bitcoin. Back in August, when we did our Bitcoin show, the price of Bitcoin surged that weekend a few hundred dollars and crossed the $3,000 per Bitcoin mark. Ten days ago, it topped out just under $20,000. I don't know the exact value because, honestly, I don't care that closely. I I stopped paying attention to it. And as soon as it hit almost $20,000, it dropped down to about $12,500, and it's still bouncing around somewhere in that range. That sounds like a pretty stable um, uh, price to be (laughs) investing in something as a store of value. Okay, if you if you are a sentient human being and you hear what Super Nerd just said, that just a few months ago, I mean, it seems like just a few weeks ago to me when we did that when we did that show, Bitcoin's at three thousand, and now it's at like twenty five thousand. If that doesn't send up every red flag in the universe in your mind, well, my dear, you, uh, you what can I tell you? What can I tell you? Um, it's, it's obvious that this thing is just a complete disaster. Hear me now and believe me later, ladies and gentlemen, markets that have integrity and markets that are real do not have extreme volatility. There is an inverse correlation. There is an inverse correlation between market integrity and volatility. And that is exactly what we're seeing right now with Bitcoin. Um, the example from, you know, back in the day in my previous life when I was a commodity broker, the, the quintessential example of this is obviously <laughs> the pork belly futures markets. And yes, pork bellies are a real thing. It's bacon, guys. It's bacon. That's what bacon is. It's the belly of the hog, you know, cut open, sliced off, smoked, cured, made delicious, one of the most spectacularly important and and good and wholesome commodities on the surface surface of this or any other planet, um, obviously. But but the the pork belly markets were basically, for all intents and purposes, untradeable. Um, it was they were notorious that there were just there was a group of five guys who basically stood in the pits in Chicago. These same five guys, wait for it, owned all of the pork belly cold storage capacity in the United States and maybe outside of the United States, too, maybe up into Canada. Who knows? Long story short, these five guys who were not men of integrity, obviously, 
um, stood in the pork belly pits. They made the market. They were the market and they owned all of the cold storage. And so they could manipulate the supply of bacon, the supply of pork bellies by, you know, flooding the market out of cold storage, you know, holding everything in cold storage and not letting anything out. So you could have, you know, tons and tons and tons and tons of pork bellies backing up. But if these five guys who control all the cold storage, if they don't let anything out into the market, they can drive the price up, they drive the price down. The belly markets, you know, would be, I think, if I remember correctly, the daily limits on on pork bellies, even back in the day, was was three bucks a hundred, or that would be three cents a pound. Three, but we we always quote animal prices in in per hundred pounds, so three bucks a hundred, and it would, you know, a limit move in pork bellies was not at all rare. Heck, there would be days when bellies would be both limit up and limit down in the same session. So we have a six dollar per hundred. Um, intraday spread, just it's stupidity like that. I mean, if you you could not you could not put in a market order in the pork belly markets because you would just get raped. They would slide you, they'd slide you a buck, a buck and a half, something like that. You know, you certainly couldn't put a stop loss order in on pork bellies because a stop loss order says, okay, if the price if the price moves and goes through this certain level that I'm that I've set then I want you to execute my order at the market. So it's basically a form of a market order contingent upon the price reaching a certain level. Okay, you, there's five guys in this market and they're just they're just controlling everything, manipulating everything. A market that had no integrity. Now the underlying commodity was completely real, it's bacon. I mean, bacon is a, a massive commodity. No, all kidding aside, it's a massive commodity in the United States. Think how much bacon is consumed. Think how much fast food restaurants are using bacon and restaurants are using bacon, not to mention the at-home bacon consumption. It's a massively important commodity. And yet the, the futures markets for pork bellies were, were basically untradeable. They, they were just awful. They were completely devoid of integrity. And the manifestation of that lack of integrity was wild volatility. Okay, it's exactly the same thing that we're seeing now with Bitcoin. Um, do you honestly believe that a market on a real, a real actual honest to goodness commodity would have the sort of volatility and the sort of price action that we're seeing in Bitcoin? Of course not. It's a dead giveaway that the whole thing is just a disaster waiting to happen. And so there's all kinds of people out on the internet, you know, Bitcoin shaming and saying, if you had done what I told you and you had bought Bitcoin, you know, but last week or last month or last year or three years ago or whatever they however they want to cite it well you your money would have done this well guys you can't get out of this stuff well yeah There's if no, i would have bought I would, intel at seven i would be a trillionaire right now well sure absolutely we can all play that game all day long when i first started in the business in 1997 if i had just started buying gold if i had just bought an ounce of gold every month oh my, my goodness gold was trading in the in the 300s back then, you know, and that's a mild example. Think about all the things that you could have done and with Apple and, and face plant and all these other, all these other, uh, stocks that you would have, could have, should have. Um, and you know what? I don't, I don't lose a wink of sleep over any of that. I'm just, it, it, it doesn't, it doesn't bother me at all. 
But with Bitcoin right now, okay, let's say you did. Let's say you did, you know, buy Bitcoin three years ago or whatever. Man, man, good luck getting out of it. Where's the liquidity? I mean, it, just because something is quoted at a certain price, it doesn't mean that you can liquidate your portfolio at that price. I mean, look at what's going on. And another, another great um, proof set of this, another story from back in the day, I remember, I remember the moment, the exact moment of the high in the 1999-2000.com bubble. Here's what happened. We're all we're all sitting in the in my office in the in the commodity brokerage office that I worked at, and there were three of us who worked in the same office. And we kind of sat in a triangle, and um, I think one one the, the office manager he was already gone for the day, and it was me and another fella, um, good guy, and we're sitting there doing our afternoon work, and and who comes in but the UPS guy to make the afternoon UPS delivery. The UPS guy, he was a really nice guy. I can still see him. He was like Polynesian. He was Hawaiian or Samoan or something. Really cool guy. Really nice, as UPS drivers tend to be. So UPS driver walks in, and this is in like 2000. This is in the first, probably the first quarter of 2000, maybe the second quarter. I can't remember exactly. He walks in, and he starts talking to us. And the UPS driver starts telling us about how we need to be buying these um, internet website stocks because that's that's just the thing, and you know you can you'll you'll double you'll triple your money, and it won't take very long. I mean, I, I remember this clear as day: the UPS driver coming in and and pitching us on um, how we need to be buying dot-com stocks. Um, so <laughs> That reminds me of a story from college. In my economics class, the uh, professor was telling us about, uh, I forget which titan of Wall Street, cashed out of everything before the start, stock market crash in, in uh, 28 or 29, whenever that happened. And when people asked him afterwards, how did you know to do that? He said, when, when I came to work one morning and the shoeshine boy was telling me about the importance of buying IBM, he said, I've got to get out of the market. If, every, if, if it is so irrational right now that people who don't really yep. know what's going on are, are so invested in this and they think they're going to ride you know, the, every stock out there to the moon, there's a real problem coming. And, and yep. he, he noticed the it. The shoeshine boy is telling you this. Yes, exactly. And so to finish the story of what happened in the commodity office, the UPS guy finishes his spiel, leaves. Um, the, my coworker and I just turn and look at each other like, oh my gosh. And my coworker, he picks up the phone and he immediately calls his biggest equity trading client. The guy traded the S&P futures. So he, he calls he calls his, his biggest equity client and he, he recounts to him, he says, I have to tell you what just happened. The UPS guy just told us we all need to be buying dot-com stocks. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, if I remember this correctly, I believe that the client bought like an at-the-money S&P put, which is expensive, okay? But it was totally the right thing to do because the high was in within, I think, within a week of that. The high was in on the on the dot com bubble, and it was just straight down from there, baby. But that's that's exactly it, man. That, that was summer to, of two thousand. Um, 
either first or second quarter of 2000. I'd have to look at a chart, but I mean, if you you just look up a continuation chart of the S and P 500 and look when the top is, but it's it was in like the first half of two of 2000. I'm pretty sure. I, I just remembered I graduated from college just as the as the dot com crash started happening, and it was that was fun finding a job in, in uh, as a programmer. Well, I mean, <laughs> and another, you know, for example. It, it, I, I, I don't know if there are people out there who are young enough that they don't remember this, but in that first dot-com bubble in 99 and 2000, there were companies that were nothing more than somebody going and, and you know, registering as a C-Corp with the Secretary of State, getting a tax ID number, writing up a business plan for a website, have no capital, I mean, have absolutely, have no money have no infrastructure, have no employees, have absolutely nothing except a tax ID number and a business plan. But it had the word E in it or internet. Oh yeah, absolutely. And in fact, at that point, it was just .com, anything .com. Because remember guys, this was all pretty pretty new in like 98, 99. The internet's pretty new and people are just starting to use it. So anything that has e or .com or anything like that, and they they could IPO these these C corps or whatever on on the stock exchange, and these people would be billionaires. They would have they would be billionaires on paper. I mean, you know, a hundred million that was small potatoes. And, and they weren't even doing anything. It's not like Amazon that took a decade to actually make make uh, a profit. Amazon, at least, was shipping books from the very beginning. These guys had an idea. They had no market. They had no products. They had no clue, basically. But they said the word Internet to their to their investors, and they were just falling all over themselves. It's like if you start a company now with 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 uh, a business plan that has the word blockchain in it, you'll get investors. Um, You don't you don't even have to have an idea. And that goes right along with what we're talking about here. I mean, Bitcoin is. Uh, Alan Greenspan used the term irrational exuberance. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's this. And and one of the companies that that wanted to hire me out of college, actually, they their whole business plan. And remember, this, this is 2000. The whole idea was uh, to to do your laundry online. And what I mean by that is you go online to a website and we didn't have smartphones back then. So you actually had to have one of those clunky machines and laptops weren't that that useful. So you had to go to your dial up modem, go mm-hmm. to a website and register to have somebody come pick up your laundry. Now, the millennials were just being born. I mean, that's something they, they, they listen to and go, oh, that's an awesome idea. Where can I do that? It's a different time now. Back at that point in time, people, the rational people of the world looked at this and said, that is crazy. But that company got funding. They lasted for a while, and then they were gone, like so many uh, digital companies were at that point in time. But, oh, yeah. but the whole point, you know, going back to what Alan Greenspan mentioned, irrational exuberance, this stuff, there's no there there. There's no substance. And and when it, the first test of it, of its actual worth comes along, they just shrivel up and die. At least in the case of Amazon, yes, it was losing money fast, but they had real customers. They they were shipping real products. They had a business plan that actually made sense. You know, there was it, cash flow. There was yeah, actual cash flow. Yeah. Massive cash flow, high velocity. They had yeah. a lot more going out than coming in for a long time, but they've turned that around. But the point being that we, you have these ideas where there's nothing there. Somebody just says, hey, it's hot. Everyone wants to throw money in it. I'll, I got a business plan, too. Well, look at Bitcoin. What is the fundamental thing that is there? I mean, we talked about this on, on the show before we did the, the Bitcoin. I mean, if you remember back to when I think it was show 19 we did on, on Bitcoin, I specifically 
wanted to do the entire show previous to that one, just talking about the concept of what is currency? What is, what is a store of value and really relying on, I thought probably in my, in my opinion, one of the best pieces you ever wrote, um, mm-hmm. the whole idea of what is money or, or the, 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 the store of value, what backs a currency and, and your phrase that you had that we are the gold. In other yeah. words, no matter what currency you have, somebody has to come through and provide the faith and credit for it. And whether you're talking about shiny disks of metal or entries in a computer on Wall Street or green colored paper or some cryptographic algorithm on someone's computer that who, who knows what, what the assigned value is supposed to be, ultimately you are believing that somebody is going to make good on a promise. And at least in the case of you know, U.S. currency, you you have to have that stuff to pay your taxes. I mean, ultimately, that that's one of the big make and break things. That goes back to the Bible. Why were the Jews carrying the Roman coins? Because that's what you had to have to pay the taxes. Not right. a single Jew in Palestine would have had those those Roman coins if it was not an absolute requirement to use those to pay taxes. In mm-hmm. the United States, that's the number one thing, in my opinion. If the day ever comes that the IRS says you can pay taxes in Bitcoin or some other cryptocurrency, it's for real and game on at that point. But given the people who compete in that space and the hegemony they enjoy over the financial markets, I don't think they're going to let somebody in, much less a distributed, nobody controls the situation. Well, and this also speaks to, you know, the petrodollar, this, that whole idea. Um, You know, why, why is the U.S. dollar this, this dominant, dominant currency that everything is basically everything is settled in and there's this tremendous anxiety about when the day will come and it is coming and it will happen when the US dollar is no longer the the global standard in which in which transactions and debts are settled and there's a tremendous amount of anxiety about that it's it speaks to that as well and and by the way i mean this is a lesson that i was taught very very early on as a child um the um what's what's really enforcing the the petrodollar is the United States military. Don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. Um, both in terms of being able to be an aggressor and also to be able to provide protection. Um, it's it's the United States military. Oh yeah, and there when, there are far more far more trouble spots in the world than Afghanistan and Iraq and Syria. Uh, places where there are legitimate humanitarian crises going on, genocides. But we don't show up in those places because there's no oil. Yep, that's exactly right. And you know. It's, it's, it's a shameful thing, and a lot of people on, on kind of the, the Tea Party right or whatever you want to call it these days kind of don't want to talk about that, kind of still want to see America as the shining city on the hill. But you, you, we have to be upfront about these, these moral questions, and, and because it's coming back down you know, to what we've been talking about, and that is money, the nature of money, what is backing money, et cetera, et cetera. So... Well, and with- the, the petroleum angle there and getting into the energy markets, that's something else where we're going to go here in a little bit. Um, the, the massive amount of electrical demand just to run the Bitcoin network as it exists right now uh, and the projection of the, the Bitcoin enthusiasts is, is this is only going to go up. Actually, I want to bookmark that idea because I have notes here um, in terms of how Bitcoin gets its, its value. Are you, I assume you're familiar with the efficient market hypothesis. Uh, I think so. Elaborate. Uh, I'm I'm going on a a, uh, a definition here from an Investopia, Investopedia, whatever it is. Uh, mm-hmm. it, it is impossible to beat the market because stock market efficiency causes existing price shares or existing share prices to always incorporate and reflect all relevant information. 
According to efficient market hypothesis, stocks always trade at their fair value on stock exchanges, making it impossible for investors to either purchase undervalued stocks or sell stocks for their inflated prices. Uh, I, I don't buy that. Well, I don't in, buy and that. in 1984, Warren Buffett wrote a critique of this, um, saying along the lines, I'm convinced that there is much inefficiency in the market. And he went on to develop it uh, beyond that. I'll have show notes to both of these ideas here. Uh, the point being, when you have one of the richest people in the world uh, saying that uh, efficient market theory is complete garbage. <laughs> Sorry. Well, I'm, it is. I, anybody almost, out almost, there, yeah, yeah I, any, anyone out there who's listening, who um, knows me from my, my cattle marketing seminar, I mean, your, your ears should have perked right up. The entire thrust of my cattle marketing, you know, DVD and what I teach in terms of cash cattle marketing is even with these extremely liquid cash commodity markets, which are the, the cash cattle markets in the United States, they're one of the most liquid cash commodity markets on earth by far. I mean, think about how many little sale barns there are all over the United States. So you have all the little sale barns, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of them in the US and Canada, then layer on top of that, all of the online stuff that you can now do where you can buy and sell cattle um, through internet services. And then layer on top of that, the fact that you can just trade in a private treaty with your neighbor or a guy on the other side of the county or a guy two counties away, you pick up the phone and call him and get, and you can do a private treaty deal anytime you want. And, the, and probably unlike uh, the pork belly markets where the three stooges and their two best friends can corner the whole market and, and, and drive the price around. I would imagine the cash um, cow market is not like that. Um, it, it's harder. And, but, you know, I even teach people how to take advantage of that because there are things that are just as simple and as organic as if you show up early to a sale barn or stay late. Um, you know, obviously, there's fewer people there early. There's way fewer people there late. You The, the market changes. That's that's a form of inefficiency. So if you just hang around till the end, see all the order buyers when they're there at the sale, you know, they, they've got businesses to run. And so when they get all the cattle bought that they need and they've got their orders filled, they're done. Man, they don't sit there and hang around. They get up and leave. So every time an order buyer gets up and leaves, what what that does is it basically ratchets, it ratchets down the market in that sale barn because you've got one less bidder there. That keeps happening and happening throughout the day. And, you know, in the in the peak season when the feeder cattle runs are high, um, sale barns can be going, you know, from early in the morning all the way through in, into the evening or in, into the nighttime. They can go all day, you know. So if you hang around and hit a lull or stay till the end or something like that, you can pick out these inefficiencies. Then just within the market itself, what I teach in the cattle marketing um, seminar, the DVD set, is how to mathematically figure out structurally within the market which weight classes of cattle are inefficiently overvalued and which classes of cattle are inefficiently undervalued. Once you mathematically figure that out, and so let's say, for example, the, mar the market is mathematically dictating, and I mean just screaming it at you at the top of its lungs, and it's so funny because nobody has any awareness of this or how to calculate this. People are too busy trying to forecast the future. They don't have any idea what's going on right in front of them. You do like, you know, five minutes worth of mathematical calculations, simple arithmetic, and you can figure all this out. Let's say that the math tells you that the 700-pound the feeder cattle are overvalued 
and the 450-pound feeder cattle are undervalued. Well, if you take five minutes and sit at home and figure this up and see this, 700 pounds are going for too much. They're inefficiently overpriced, and 450 weights are going for not nearly enough. They're underpriced, and you have... Um, you know, a, a trailer load of 700 pound feeder cattle standing on your place in your inventory, it's obvious what you need to do. You need to take your 700 pound cattle that you have in inventory. You need to sell them because they're bringing too much. They're inefficiently too expensive. And then what you do is you replace them with the 450 pound feeder cattle, which are, which their price is too low. So now you still have exactly the same inventory. You still have the same, you still have cattle. You've not, you know, gotten out of the cattle business. You've just, you've just um, modified your inventory in an informed way so that what you have, you've gotten rid of the stuff that's too expensive and you've instead purchased the stuff that is undervalued and is presumably going to increase in value at a steeper rate as the animals gain weight and move through this weight continuum in the market. And it's just this, this ongoing process of figuring this out over and over and over again, day in, day out, week in, week out, and just always adjusting your inventory. It's that simple. The word arbitrage comes to mind. Am I thinking That's that exactly wrong? what it is. It's arbitrage. Yes. <laughs> And I can't define it off the top of my head, but I think it. it, it I think it has to do with exploiting the um, the inefficiencies of, of where something is undervalued versus overvalued. That's exactly what arbitrage is. It's identifying these over and undervaluations in the market, and then executing simultaneously in the market both a sell and a buy. That's what I just described. You've got the, you've got the seven hundred pounders that are worth too much. Okay, sell those, and then at exactly the same time you know, presumably the same day or, or within, even within a week, you know, the cattle market isn't going to change that much that fast. Generally you've, you've both sold and bought. And what you've done is you've captured that spread, that inefficiency between those two classes. And this can be done. I mean, you can arbitrage anything. You can arbitrage real estate. You can arbitrage collector cars. You, and, you know, obviously you can arbitrage um, corn, wheat, soybeans, pork bellies. I mean, good luck with that, right? That's then, but that's what the five, the five corrupt pork belly traders who owned all the cold storage at the end of the day, what they were doing is they were arbitraging. They were arbitraging the futures contracts off of the cold storage market and also off of the fresh market. So they're constantly arbitraging these things. It's just that they're crooked. And so they're manipulating the markets in a dishonest way. Um, and, and again, that's why the pork belly markets were so notoriously volatile. The cattle markets, uh, they're, they're not that volatile. There, there can be some, some price swings and some price movements. But as I, ta as I teach in my, in my cattle marketing seminar, um, you're kind of protected against that precisely because by selling and buying back either on the same day or within the same week, um, the, the, the tighter that window is of when you execute the sell and you execute the buy to, re to re replace your inventory, sell the 700 pounders, buy back the 450 pounders, the tighter that window is, the more protected against volatility you are. 
because you're selling and buying in the same market. So, you know, if the market zooms way up, well, great, you sell into a high market. So, you, okay, great, I sell into a high market, but I'm also buying back in a high market. So, those two cancel each other out. And what you're left with is the spread between the two. And it's the same thing that if, if the market were for some reason to drop very sharply, for example, um, you know, back years ago when they found um, a mad cow in Canada or whatever. But okay, the cattle market would drop because everybody would freak out and panic and oh my gosh, this is the end of the world. Actually, it was a generally a tremendous opportunity. You could sell cattle into that market and you say, well, that, that sucks because you're selling into a low. Ah, but you forget, what are you also doing always at exact, almost exactly the same time? You're buying back in that same low market as well. So again, it's, it, and the word for this is self-hedged. And that's what I was teaching people. It's the ultimate form of risk management. If you're executing both sides of the, of the transaction at the same time on the same market, and all you're doing is, is arbitraging differences in um, class, classifications, types, um, geographical locations, things like that, that is basically eliminating all of the risk of absolute price movement up and down. It doesn't matter. The only reason that absolute price movement up or down comes into play or makes any difference is because people are stupid these days and they, they over leverage everything. So the cattlemen have gone out, they've borrowed within an inch of their life and sometimes even beyond an inch of their life. Everything is leveraged. And so if there's any downward movement in the market, they're just they're hosed. They're completely they're completely busted. There's no there's no cash. They're in the hole. You know, they owe the bank money and it's a disaster. If you have a, a strong equity position or ideally what I taught my students is ideally what you're gunning for is to get to a full equity position and have no debt as quickly as possible in your business model. If you have a full equity position or even just a really strong equity position, let's say 50%, are the cattle markets going to chop up and down 50%? Probably not. They, that Those markets have enough integrity that that kind of volatility is, kind, is, is unheard of. But the, the choppier and more volatile a market is, the stronger your equity position should be. And if you have a full equity position – Okay, even if the market goes to zero and stays at zero, which is, I mean, for a commodity, for a food commodity like cattle, that simply isn't possible. It's not going to go to zero and stay at zero because it's food. It's food and it's leather. And so it's always going to have an intrinsic value. If you have a full equity position in your cattle and the market hypothetically goes to zero and stays at zero, even then... All you've done is you've lost the money that's tied up in those cattle. You're not in the hole. You don't owe anybody anything. You don't owe a bank anything. You're not, you're, you know, you're not in this horrific position that most cattlemen get themselves into because, you know, they have just a minuscule equity position, if any, in the cattle. And then when the market pulls back, there's any degree of volatility, especially to the downside. They're, they're completely done. They're bankrupt. Um, and the phone, so the phone rings and they hear the word margin call. Uh, well, it's more than a margin call. It's a bankruptcy call. You know, margin call is, you know, you're trading futures and so forth. And, 
and you should understand going in. And yes, the futures markets, the ag futures markets have traditionally been very highly leveraged. The traditional, when I was in the business, the initial margin for um, actual bona fide hedgers generally ran three to five percent of the notional value of the contract. So you can see, I mean, it was it was pretty hardcore leverage. But if you were trading futures and you're hedging with futures, it was understood, you know, that you understood that dynamic. But for some reason, when you were talking about people who had the cash commodity and were trading the actual cash commodity, for some reason, they just got completely stupid and just couldn't couldn't process this and would just keep making exactly the same mistakes over and over and over again. And the only thing I could attribute it to is um, there's two things. Well, greed, you know, people keep thinking, you know, if I can have a highly leveraged position and, and catch the market on an upswing, then, oh, that'll, that'll just make me, I'll be a millionaire overnight. And, you know, sometimes that would happen. The markets do go up and the markets do go down. And when people would catch an up wave, what, again, people would do in the cattle business, just dumb, is that as they, as the market went up, instead of capturing and holding that equity, again, back to greed, they get greedy and they keep relevering into the higher market. And so as the market ratchets up, they just keep re-leveraging and re-leveraging and re-leveraging because the stupid idiots in the land-grant universities and the ag economists are telling them, you have to leverage your money. You can't just be sitting on cash. You can't just have a bunch of idle cash laying around. It's exactly the opposite. Having idle cash laying around is exactly what you want. That is a position of strength. This business of just levering and levering everything and, and trying to and then trying to gamble on this volatility, even even relatively minor volatility in, you know, like the cattle markets or the grain markets, relatively speaking, relatively, you know, there I always perceive those markets to be just right, you know, not too hot, not too cold, just right. They moved, they moved up and down, they went back and forth, they trended, but it wasn't like this ridiculous, stupid Bitcoin irrational exuberance. It was just it was just the organic flow and movement of of food commodity prices. And so it it gave you the opportunity because any movement in a market actually does afford you opportunity. Um, and and volatility to some extent can be set volatility ex itself if you know how to to handle it if you know how to truly market a commodity and arbitrage um, that affords you an opportunity you know stagnation makes for really really boring and really difficult arbitrage I mean it's possible but you really have to you know it like you have to have just surgical precision and it gets really difficult to seek out and find um, inefficiencies in a market that's basically just going straight sideways. It, it can be done. And, and oftentimes that is what drives technological innovation and improvement because it's in technological innovation and improvement that a, a fairly um, sideways market, that's how you get the leg up. You, you get the leg up on other people essentially by driving down your own cost structure um, and not so much by having skill in arbitraging something because there's really there's no price price volatility to arbitrage. So it becomes a question of technology and execution. But um, yeah, I mean, it's it all comes back ties together. These are all 
basic rudimentary concepts that just generation after generation, these lessons are not learned. People are not figuring this stuff out and they should. And it's, it's really interesting. It's, it's a fascinating um, historical social dynamic where it seems to be really for the first time, probably in human history, that, that skill sets and savvy and competence in these core, core um, areas of life um, are not being passed from generation to generation. I mean, you know, we're, we're coming off what, you know, the dot-com bubble of 99-2000, that should have been a lesson for a century, at, at least a half a century. And here we are, not 20 years later, and the same damn thing is happening because nobody learned. Don't forget the housing bubble in 2008. That, that was exactly. only eight years later and we didn't learn anything? Exactly. Exactly. Well said. People don't, there's a disconnect from the past. There's a disconnect from um, previous generations. You know, new people come up and there's this, oh, yeah, let's tie this all back in. There's this intense narcissism. Um, and none of these young people are listening or, or even or even stopping and looking to see what has happened before when when they came online, you know, a 20, a 22 year old kid right now, his memory, let's say there's a 22 year old kid starting in any sort of financial industry career right now. Um, his memory of anything financial is maybe four at the top six years tops. And imagine that, imagine that. So what's, what's four years ago? 2000, the end of 2013, the beginning of 2014, that, that is his entire window of reference. And not only does he not know or remember anything before that, which, you know, isn't his fault because it isn't our fault that we're, we're young or it's before we're born. That's not our fault. What is our fault is when we arrogantly refuse to even look back and see what happened and certainly we refuse to ask older generations what what happened uh, in this time. There, there's so little information being passed from generation to generation that the the repeating cycles of these of these massive societal dynamics and events, certainly in the markets and then also in, in geopolitics as well. These things are just repeating with this incredible frequency because of this. And it reminds me of Father Ripperger's, um, you know, the, the spirits, the generational spirits of, of demonic oppression. The first uh, generation that he covers is the World War I generation. And he said that first spirit of oppression, of demonic oppression, was the spirit of incommunication, you know, these, th this generation, this older generation did not communicate sufficiently with the younger generation. And it also goes back the other way. And then as you go through all of these generational sp spirits of oppression that Father Ripperger teaches us about, understand that they're cumulative. So, you know, the World War II generation had both their own spirit of demonic oppression plus the spirit of incommunication. And then the baby boomer generations, they had all of the spirits. They had um, uh, indocility. And then what's the World War II generation spirit of oppression, Super Nerd? Do you remember what it is exactly? I, hmm. 
I can't remember what the World War II generation is. Um, they didn't, the criticism that was made of them is that, you know, they fought that war, but they didn't do it because it was the right thing to do. They did it they did it because they were obligated to do it. It was, the, it was their duty it. or something like that? But it was they, their, yeah, they only did it because they were obliged to do it. They didn't do it because it was morally the right thing to do. And then they coddled their children. They coddled the baby boomers. The baby boomers then yielded, who's next? That's my generation. Well, in, in, terms, after the baby in, in terms of fighting a war because you have to, it's interesting to look at Korea and then Vietnam in, in, in such close succession. Korea is, is, is in that, that crossover, but by the time you get to Vietnam, you have people straight up refusing to fight, even though we're still under a draft. But yeah, yeah. A- after that, the baby boomers, then then um, Generation X is more or less narcissism. Our, ours, is narcissism. But, yeah. And then after Generation X, the millennial generation, it's the spirit of the occult. Did it go straight and to millennial? I thought there was like some token is Generation there Y. In between? I think there was it- a Generation Y in there. Yeah. We'll have to look it up. But anyway, we're at the occult now. And I think we've talked about this before on a podcast, but um, man, we went from cattle marketing to um, the occult. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all it's Bitcoin's fault. And, 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 it, and it's people all who question, fault. You people who question why I don't like Bitcoin, <laughs> it goes straight to the devil, damn it. No, um, yeah, that's right. <laughs> no, actually, in, in terms of passing on information to, to folks, uh, yeah, there was a, a very, that, that, to me, that's a very interesting side side tangent we took through the cattle markets and whatnot. And if, if you want to learn more th- about this, about 16 hours worth of it, uh, your cattle marketing DVD is still available. You, um, I shouldn't say DVD. It's a DVD set along with a full-color yeah. book and all the rest. And the link for that is at the top of your website, barnhart.biz. So if that sounded awesome, then um, go buy a copy and uh, pass it on to future generations. And it's learn very about- interesting. And, and I'm still selling, um, I don't, you know, a couple a month, something like that. And they are, they are, it's not cheap. It's 500 bucks. But I always say, man, that's, that's the best money that comes into me because, you know, I feel like I'm, it's, it's, you know, actually selling an honest, (laughs) an honest commodity. I, I struggle mightily with the whole notion that, you know, people sitting around listening to me talk or reading the stuff that I write on the blog is, is something that, merits, um, you know, a wage. Um, and that's how I should be making my living. So, um, it always makes me happy when I can sell a cattle marketing DVD. Cause I'm like, okay, right on. This is, this is a real thing that I did. And this is, this is a real commodity that can change people's lives. And it's every bit as relevant. It was, it was recorded in March of 2011. And it's it, because it's mathematically based. It's, it will never ever age. It will always be relevant. Um, it will always be applicable. And it's it, the it, thing that's interesting is that it's applicable to all markets, all commodity markets. So, you know, I had people, I had one of the most flattering things I ever heard from a, uh, a couple who came to a cattle marketing school is they, you know, they came and, you know, the last break on the second day, they came up to me and they said, we, we're not even in the cattle business. We heard about this. We own, um, a series of car dealerships, I think in Wisconsin. And they had heard about the cattle marketing school from somebody and they came and it was a husband and wife. And the wife was the one who was talking to me. And she said, we just this past summer, we spent, I don't know how many thousands, like tens of thousands of dollars. We went to the Harvard business school, summer short course and dropped all this money thought that we were going to learn all this stuff. And she said, 
we had learned more from you in the first two hours of this seminar than we learned in the entire Harvard Business School short course. And they had dropped like five figures on this. And I was like, nah, I, I, I'm not surprised. You know, I'm very flattered that you say that, but I'm not at all surprised because nothing, nothing of any actual worth or intelligence basically is being taught. And that's, that's something I'm really happy to see is that apparently in the United States, the whole MBA thing, the Masters of Business Administration, the whole MBA bubble is totally bursting. And people have finally figured out that these people go, and I mean, they go to, you know, all these highfalutin, some of them Ivy League schools, Berkeley, whatever, and they get these MBAs, and it means absolutely nothing. These people have absolutely no competence to run a business. They have, they've, you know, probably just been indoctrinated with Keynesian nonsense and and liberal politics and you know tax and spend et cetera et cetera anti-capitalists now at this point and people are finally figuring out that this whole MBA thing is just a total joke and how many people have, have put themselves into six-figure debt to go and get one of these fancy pants MBAs, these people have no idea what they're doing. You well, know, and, I and if you see an honest I'm, review of what you actually get from business school, I mean, I I was actually thinking about getting an MBA at one point in time, and and and, and uh, reading about it, they say the biggest thing you get out of out of the MBA program is the networking and who you it's just meet. So so yeah. you, and I was thinking, well, I can talk to people, I can network on my own. I mean, granted, yeah. I'm, I wouldn't necessarily be rubbing shoulders with the Cologne and Cufflink, uh, uh, Cufflink crowd, but uh, I, I could probably get some introductions and, and if I really wanted to. But then again, is that necessary for what I do? So um, in terms of networking, there are other ways to do it. You know, save, save the money. Or if you really want to drop that much money, yeah, you can buy your way in some interesting parties at that point. But it's all about networking. It's not about what you, you're not going to learn anything in an MBA program that you didn't learn in your, you know, sophomore econ class. Exactly. Absolutely. If that, if that. So certainly, uh, don't spend money on that. Don't spend money on, you know, you know, my position. We've talked about the whole university thing. Um, learn a trade, learn how to be a plumber, learn how to weld, learn how to be an undertaker or mortician, something like that. Learn how to do something real, but stay, stay the heck away. Keep your kids, your grandkids, anybody that you love and care about, keep them away from, um, these so-called institutions of higher learning. Yeah. They're more high and less learning. Exactly. So this all was a tangent off of uh, Bitcoin and what is Bitcoin actually worth and how do you, how do people actually get to a valuation of Bitcoin? And if you go to the Bitcoin website itself, they say, well, how do we determine the value of Bitcoin? It's all supply and demand, which, okay, that's great in theory, but I haven't seen a, a cogent explanation anywhere of, of where that supply and demand engine actually works. Ultimately, it boils down to what do you think it's worth? And when you have you know, Kramer on CNBC saying buy Bitcoin because it's going to the moon and, and Max Kaiser and all the other people who uh, froth at the mouth about this kind of stuff. It's easy to get, to get caught up in, in the excitement of this. And I didn't dwell a lot on about this on, on the, um, the Bitcoin podcast that, that uh, I did explaining a lot of this. I, one of the things I did not explain at all because I still didn't fully get it uh, is the cryptological aspect of this. And in terms of when a, a Bitcoin transaction takes place, whether you're buying something, trading something, uh, honestly, it doesn't really make a difference what the transaction is. Um, whenever you record something in, in the uh, in the Bitcoin space, 
the transaction itself is intentionally mathematically complex and difficult. And the whole point is that they want to make the ledger uh, immutable so that it can't be changed or, or corrupted in any way, shape or form going back in history. Setting it, you know, in the future, it could possibly be that, that somebody could mess with things in the future, in which case, guess what? All that Bitcoin you spent money on, nobody has faith in it anymore and it goes to zero, but at least the history would all be there. There is so yeah, and that goes back to the to the phrase full faith and credit. And I think that hits on it right there. Um maybe that's just a platitude up until this moment. Maybe there's some people out there who the light bulb is going off over their head saying, Oh, I see what that means. You have to have faith in 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 the paradigm, in the system. And certainly that's what we're talking about with the blockchain. Well, one of the things that about Bitcoin that kind of makes sense is that they're looking at traditional, or at least in the last 50, 100 years, monetary structures and systems and saying, well, what, one of the things that's wrong about currencies these days is that the issuing body, whether it's the Federal Reserve, the Bank of, of uh, Europe, or, or whatever, can just print the brains out of whatever's out there and inflate the money supply so that the individual pieces of currency end up being you know, comparatively worth less. Well, when you when you put these really powerful mathematic algorithms to this uh, problem set, what you end up with is a, and what they were striving for was the digital equivalency of gold mining. So the idea is that there's a finite amount of gold uh, in existence and people, there's still quite a bit in the ground. And, and every year you can kind of predict uh, unless there's some massive, um, highly enriched uh, uh, gold mine that's found, like what happened in the 1840s in California, a massive amount of gold right on the surface could, could be found that there's a pretty good curve on how much gold is going to be extracted from the ground. And you can probably project over the next few centuries, if not millennia, what that growth curve is going to be or how it's tailing off and how much gold will be pulled out of the ground. So you come up with these really complex mathematical algorithms and say that we're only going to make 21 million Bitcoins that also get divided into 100 million subunits, but that's beside the point. So you have this finite amount of Bitcoin. The initial issuance is half of it. And then the algorithm is such that it, it tails off down to zero by the next 150 years. So you have this mathematical guarantee of scarcity. You cannot inflate the stuff. So that's attractive to people who realize that that inflation is a real problem with currencies. Well, how do you enforce this? You make the calculations so difficult, it literally costs you a, 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 non-trivial, a non-trivial amount to do the calculations, to do the, the logging of, of the Bitcoin transactions. And... Just a year and a half ago, it was estimated that the global Bitcoin mining network would consume, by the year 2020, would consume as much electricity as the country of Denmark. They were only (laughs) off by three years because we crossed it this year. Wow. The aggregate computing power of the Bitcoin network is about 100,000 times larger than the world's 500 fastest supercomputers combined. The total energy of this web of hardware is estimated to be 31 terawatt hours per year, which is a giant number that doesn't make any sense. Uh, more than 150 individual countries in the world consume a less less electricity than this annually. So this is a problem that the, the, the Bitcoin enthusiasts might not have thought of. Yes, on, mm. pa- on paper, there's massive amounts of, of demand for this thing that doesn't exist in reality. It's only in, in, in computers. And if you bought it 800 and you bought a lot of it. Well, let's go back to, to uh, 2010 when these things were literally pennies per Bitcoin. Let's just say you bought a thousand Bitcoin. It didn't cost a thousand bucks at the time. You may have gotten away with a hundred bucks. Uh-huh. Try selling that right now. 
If you yeah. had a thousand bitcoins and you tried to dump it all in the market right now, what do you again supply and demand? What do you think is going to happen to the price? This sets aside one of the other problems. Let's just say you have a lot of bitcoin right now. There are very few exchanges on the internet right now where you can take cryptocurrencies and convert them to fiat currencies like uh, U.S. dollars, euros, etc. Coinbase is one of them, and they cap your transactions at. It, it varies now. That's that's another another. You know, talk about the the, the volatility of, of of the price of bitcoin. How much you can actually cash out on a day-to-day basis varies as well. It ranges anywhere from $3,000 to $7,000 per day. Uh, it could be more or less depending upon the solvency of Bitcoin itself. Um, but the ability to say, unlike the stock market, if you've got $40 billion worth of Intel and you feel like making a move on all of it at once, you can do that. You can do it right away. Yes, that will possibly move the market if you're Carl Icahn or somebody who's a big investor who can move the markets by doing things like that. But you can't do that with Bitcoin, because there's the question of somebody's got to buy it. And if you're trying to simply cash it out, well, what do you think Coinbase is doing? If they're paying you US cash for your Bitcoin, they've got to find a buyer for that. And they're sure as heck not going to sit there and buy $100 million worth of your Bitcoin just because you want to sell it. So there's that problem. There's the problem, like I I mentioned already, the Bitcoin network is taking more energy than Ireland right now. Um, You look it up on, on, on websites, there, there was a list of nine countries, Serbia and Ireland are two of them. Um, that the 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 network consume the, the network of the Bitcoin miners globally take up more electricity than whole countries at this point. That that is just ridiculous. Two point yeah. nine million U.S. households use less energy than the Bitcoin global network, and so yet in some of these people who who are you know big Bitcoin enthusiasts also happen to be big um, you know green energy enthusiasts and keep my carbon footprint zero. Uh, think about that for a minute. <laughs> Oh, irony of ironies. I mean, this, this whole concept, this, this struck me when w- you were explaining the blockchain and how with every single Bitcoin transaction that this blockchain is essentially rewritten and then everybody has to carry around a copy of it and it's constantly being updated, basically rewritten in total. Guys, there's hardly any Bitcoin transactions going on right now. Imagine if all of the transactions that you execute now using either cash or a card, you know, a debit or credit card. Imagine if all of those went to Bitcoin. Imagine all of that computing that every single one of those transactions necessitated the rewriting of the blockchain. Just the, the amount of the amount of energy that this consumes is just—it's impossible. Well, you can it, see it. You can see that it's impossible. It, it's a massive amount of electricity to just do the the computations, and also it, it's getting to the point where the the amount of hard disk storage it would take to have one um, one complete copy of the entire ledger. When we did the show back in August, I want to say it was 140 gigabytes, and I knew that because I had a full copy of the ledger on my computer just to be able just to see how much was there and how fast it grew. And that, that got less than interesting really fast. And I deleted that from my computer. Mm-hmm. The point being that let's just say that something changed between August and now that the transaction throughput uh, grew. And I think it was six to 10 transactions per second when I was doing the research then that the Bitcoin network as it existed in August, it actually started bog- bogging down at that point, which is why there was a Bitcoin split or a, a, uh, a fork of Bitcoin. It was Bitcoin cash. And then there was um, segregated witness or segwit just wait five minutes and somebody else has made a new fork of Bitcoin. And it has to do with the fact that there are various technological problems. Either you can't do a lot of transactions per second, the, 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 the ledger gets to be too big. 
take your pick. Um, and part of this has to be that it's a decentralized system. So you have to have a consensus network of saying, you know, if, if I, if I uh, ping, you know, Bob's Bitcoin uh, ledger computer and say, what, what does Anne have on her Bitcoin ledger right now? Okay, that's fine. That's what Bob says. But to be, to have any, any faith in this, I've got to hit six or seven or eight or 20 more uh, nodes. They've all got to cryptologically uh, match up. This is time consuming. It takes bandwidth uh, that gets back into our our topic last uh, week yeah. about about network neutrality and all the rest uh, although I, I will admit bitcoin traffic is does is so low compared to um the video you're you're going to run into bit uh, traffic problems uploading youtube videos a lot faster than you would with uh bitcoin but the point being that there is you know actual network traffic uh you know being consumed here but the point is when you get a reference to what is what is Anne's bitcoin ledger currently i can't trust her necessarily because i need to check against the ledger and if i i can't just trust one person so the question is how many do i trust and are these in racket with each other compare this to visa or the the big banks right now i mean even though it's not a, an ideal situation, we nobody in, in their right mind should trust Bank of America. But at least you can check. Right. You, you, at least you can call you know through through the computer system and say what's Anne's balance at U.S. Bank, or I want to run a charge of four thousand dollars against her credit card. Are you going to approve this? Yes or no? And you're mm-hmm. going to get the reaction in a whole lot less than one sixth one sixth of a second. I mentioned in the August show that on an average day, the Visa network, for example, runs three thousand transactions a second on average. And yeah. on Black Friday and probably uh, the second day of Christmas, they're running closer to thirty to thirty-five thousand per second. Mm-hmm. There's not a single cryptocurrency in existence currently that can come anywhere close to that. So the idea that we're going to switch all of our all, all of our um, transactions to cryptocurrency—it's absolute insanity. It, it cannot happen. And even if you could, the amount of electricity it's it's going to draw—I I saw something that um, by about 2050, if Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies continue their current growth rate, and that's the that's the caveat at this point, that the demand for electricity just to run cryptocurrencies will exceed all known electrical gener- generating capacity. So yeah. unle- unless you're working on a combination of uh, quantum computing, at which point this all becomes worthless anyway, because quantum computing is going to break every cryptographic algorithm we know, or you're working on something like um, nuclear fusion or some kind of, of just leap in technology that's way beyond it. And if we've got nuclear fusion scientists, hey, let me know whether how close you are on this because the Bitcoin people are, are um, counting on you. Um, unless something like this comes down the pike, and this is not expected. I mean, nuclear fusion, for example, that's been 20 years away for the last 80 years. I mm-hmm. don't think that's going to change over the next 80 years. And if you're a nuclear fusion expert, email me and let me know. Um, but the, the point being that that there there are some hard limits here about what cryptocurrencies can reasonably expect to do. Yes, they're very cool. The blockchain technology, very cool. And there's a, there, there, are some, um, there are some good reasons why businesses that want to build um, business models on top of blockchain technology, it's very interesting, especially in the healthcare space, uh, public records. How neat would it be to be able to have a cryptographically proven algorithm to show the chain of custody for a, a piece of land, for, for a title? That would be neat. It would cut out a lot of the expense of title companies. Instead of taking two weeks or whatever it takes for a title company to come back with uh, a full report of, of a home before you buy it, you can get that in a few milliseconds. And then maybe 18 more seconds to decrypt the or, or val- validate the, the encryption chain. The point is you wouldn't be waiting a full week to get something validated at that point. So there are some situations where this makes a lot of sense. But in terms of doing a massive amount of transactions and replacing the e-commerce system as we know it, 
I, it's not going to happen. There's no, no. way it's going to happen. It's more likely that dinosaurs will come back than cryptocurrencies will take over. Yep, I agree. And, and at the rate we're consuming gasoline, we might need the dinosaurs to come back to do this. <laughs> Indeed. Yep, I agree wholeheartedly. I think that pretty much wraps up <laughs> my my extended rant on on um, on cryptocurrency. And yes, I realize that after the last show, we were going to do a follow up to it. But honestly, the the only thing I never really covered on it was was um, cryptology. And I'm not sufficiently advanced in mathematics to be able to um, hold forth on that one. Uh, one of the things I mentioned is when you have your your Bitcoin or cryptocurrency wallet of any kind, as long as they're implemented in the same way that Bitcoin is, and if they're not, then they're doing something new yet again. That the idea being that you can have a ton of different addresses that people can send money to or you, from which you can send money. But ultimately, it all comes down to one cryptographic hash that you, or a private key that you own. And I think I can say this in, without getting too geeky about it, that the way the cryptology works is something called um, uh, asynchronous key uh, encryption. I'm not going to explain how it works. I'm just going to mention that there are two, two parts that are public key encryption is what it's called. It's asynchronous and how it works, but it's called public key encryption. So the encryption set works this way. You've got a private key and a public key. The public key you broadcast and publish to the world. So for example, if you wanted to uh, get into the, and if you wanted to in, encourage somebody to, or people to send you encrypted emails, then what you would get is, is one of these uh, private key encryption schemes. You would keep your private key and then you would publish the public key. And then anybody who wants to send you an encrypted message gets the public key. They write their email and encrypt it with that public key. And the only key that can decrypt that is your private key. Now, the private key okay. works the other way around. Anything encrypted with the private key can be can be unencrypted with the public key. Now, that sounds like that's a horrible way to, to store secrets. It is. But the thing is, anything that's decrypted with that public key proves that it was, it was encrypted with your private key. So it's a way of proving ownership. If uh-huh. anybody ever gets a hold of your private key, they own everything you have. And that's what that's where you may have seen stories about someone... Uh, you know, renting a bulldozer to try and dig through a a a, um, a landfill to find a computer that had forty thousand bitcoins on it on the hard drive that he threw away back in twenty eleven because he didn't think it was ever that fad was never going to amount to anything. They they don't lose the bitcoin per se. That's always permanently on the blockchain. But what you lose is that private key that that mathematical algorithm that allows you to assert ownership of something on the on the chain. Um, another thing that came across recently, I don't think it was Bitcoin. It might've been Ethereum, whatever, make up your name, cryptocurrency. Uh, somebody got hit with a virus and wiped out files on their computer. And apparently this virus, I don't know if it specifically targeted private key, um, uh, files for being able to do private key encryption, but somebody effectively lost, um, what was it? $40,000 worth of cryptocurrency because the private key on their computer got wiped out and they didn't have a Uh backup. Um, anytime you're doing something important on a computer, you always have backups. Um, any database administrator will tell you that they are only as good as their most recent restore from a backup. So just because you have a backup of something, make sure you can restore from it. So if you have a significant investment in cryptocurrency, it's not good enough to make a copy on a floppy disk or, or thumb drive or whatever you've got that to, to, or a piece of paper to make sure that you, yeah, I backed up my key. Okay. Now prove that you can restore from that backup. When you can do that reliably, then you've got backups. And so you, you see these situations where, you know, the computer takes a lightning strike or a virus or something, you know, and people say they lose all this cryptocurrency. No, they've lost their ability to assert ownership of it. Same way as let's say you look like every other person. Let's, let's say you're an iPhone 
and and um, you're talking to somebody Chinese. And I, I use that example because there was no, a news, it was just news in the story news. Recently, yeah. yeah, exactly. That hey, they all look the same to me. Hey, what does that say about Apple? But anyway, the, the idea being that if you can't assert your your identity, uh, you, you go to the bank and you look like 18 other other customers or 18,000 or 18 million other other customers, but you can't assert who you are. It doesn't matter how much you've got in your account unless you can assert that you really own it. And that's that's where that private key encryption comes in. That's one of the, the most important aspects of it. So I mentioned that you can have your Bitcoin wallet and you can have anywhere from one to an infinite, theoretically infinite number of addresses where there are Bitcoin stored in those different addresses that are yours but to assert ownership of those addresses you've got to be able to prove that with your pri- with with your your private key and like i said the the way i, I said it earlier is that you can uh, en- encrypt something with, with with your private key that anybody with a public key, key can decrypt and that's more or less how it works on, on the bitcoin network and if i radically got that wrong and you know that i said it wrong email at supernerdmedia.com and straighten me out but i'm pretty sure well, i've got I this a, part I have right a question so let's take a hy- hypothetical situation where there's an attack and um you know a hundred million dollars in bitcoin is lost because somebody loses their private key let's say due to an attack from i don't know let's say north korea or something what happens to that hundred million dollars is it just snuffed out of existence or because that's that's really problematic um Let's change the scenario slightly. Let's say um, a thousand people go to some fancy party. You know, it's a party of people that met at an MBA school, for example. And mm-hmm. they, they check their coat at, at, at the lobby and they're given a ticket. And the only way they can ever possibly get that, their coat back is if they present that ticket. Let's say 14 of these people lost their ticket or somebody stole the ticket and burned it right in front of them. Mm-hmm. Have they lost their coats? The only thing they've lost is the ability to claim their coat. That's, right. that's what's going on here when you see these stories about people losing Bitcoin. Now, there are cases where uh, somebody will break into their computer, steal the, the, the private key, and then can assert ownership of what they have. So that would be the pickpocket at the, at the party posing as, as uh, somebody serving drinks, picking your, 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 um, your coat check ticket, and walking out with your mint coat. But that's not... But if you, if you can't access it, if you can't put it on and wear it outside into the freezing cold... Well, it's worthless. It doesn't do you a damn bit of good. Exactly. Ever. ever. Exactly. So, I mean, it's the difference. The, the terminology typically is that people lose Bitcoin. What they're losing is the ability to assert ownership of it. And either the, the, the proof of being able to own it was destroyed in the case of a virus attack or a hard drive fails because they didn't do proper backups and couldn't, couldn't prove that, that or did never, never properly um, went through the steps to be able to, to make sure they could restore from backup. Or Boris bad guy breaks into their computer and takes their private key and then asserts ownership of all their Bitcoin and transfers it to his account. At which point you've got zero recourse to anybody at this point because it's a it's a decentralized network. Nobody owns it. Who you who exactly well, to whom to whom are you going to complain at that point? Yeah. So let's stick with the with the scenario of just by your own negligence you've lost your key. You you cannot access that quote unquote money. No, and no one else can either. Nope. It, it, so at that point, I mean, if you think about it, you know, metaphysically, it's, it ceased to exist, right? Well, it, it's still there. It, it, it's like a car that, that you've lost the keys and you can never unlock it, can never start it. It's just simply going to be there forever, but it, it'll never be able to be used. 
Um, it, and, and I think that's one of the fundamental weaknesses of cryptocurrencies as they exist right now. You compare it to a bank, and a lot of people think that cryptocurrencies will replace banks. But if I lose my bank cards, or they're burned in my house if my house burns down, I can always get the documents from the government to assert who I am. I can uh-huh. always then go to the bank and say, this is who I am. Um, all of my proofs of, of my identity for accessing my funds were destroyed. Please issue me new ones. They can do it, and then I can get to my funds again. That mechanism does not exist with cryptocurrencies. Wow. That has tremendous uh, nefarious potential. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't have to steal your, your Bitcoins to, to deny you the ability to use it. All I need to do is take a sledgehammer to your computer if you haven't done backups. Yeah. And it, it would be essentially would be a form of like state terrorism to, to completely wipe out an entire country's access to their, to their funds and essentially cause the entire money supply of a given nation to, it, in a certain sense, cease to exist. I, I still keep coming down ontologically on how if, if you can't access it and no one else can either, it, it then ceases to exist. If it can't be observed, if it can't be used, if it can't be transferred, it, it ceases to exist in a, in, a, in a very real way. Yeah, there's no effective difference between it ceasing to exist and having it still exist, but nobody can use it. And you mentioned, right. you mentioned possibly nefarious state actors. Um, there is one particular country in the world that claims the number one position in the following three categories. Producer of coal, consumer of coal, and mining of Bitcoin. Want to guess who it is? United States of America? Mm, second guess is? Producer of coal? Yeah, it's China. Oh, oh sure, sure, sure. Yeah, okay. they, they have uh, some interesting motivations when they deal with the United States, and um, mm-hmm. it's not always amicable. I did not realize that they were as much into Bitcoin mining as, as, as they are. Apparently, um, a lot of the uh, hydroelectricity on, on the Yangtze Dam project, the, the big Three Gorges Dam, a lot of the electricity from that is being used for Bitcoin mining. I would have thought they could use it for more constructive wow. purposes, but uh, yeah. the, the number one place in the world in, in, for Bitcoin mining is China. I, in, in this, I just learned tonight, and, and I'll, I'll post the link um, in, in the show notes, but apparently... More than fifty percent of all the mining pools in the United uh, on the Bitcoin uh, network are in China. Okay, go back to what we said about the whole fifty-one percent problem. Once you have a majority of the people on the Bitcoin network who can control the way all the transactions are logged in, in on the on the blockchain, you can't have faith in what the future of it's going to be. And if you don't have faith in the future of it's going, what, what the future of the cryptocurrency is going to be, then why should you have any faith in its current value? Exactly. Exactly. Now, I know that the proponents will say, yes, uh, over half of the mining pools are in China right now, but they're not under a single control. Okay. Yeah, because the communists are known for their freedom and not ever taking right. anything over. <laughs> just because just because they're not asserting, asserting that ability right now, and, and maybe there's something in place where they couldn't, technologically speaking, and if somebody tried, they'd pull a dead man switch and all of that bit, Bitcoin mining potential goes offline, in which case you've got a different problem. You can't do six to 10 transactions a second. You're down to two or three um, and, 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 or, or a different situation. No matter how you try to argue this, Bitcoin proponents, it's a problem to have as much mining going on as China right now because you're consolidating a lot of the capability in one place. Yeah. Setting aside the fact that it's 
chewing up so much electricity that could be put to better things. I mean, I joked with a friend of mine that I thought about going as it gets super cold this time of year. I mean, it's, it, it, you know, it's a big cold snap through a big part of the United States. I thought about buying some, some Bitcoin mining rigs just so I can, I can put 200 amps worth of that through these mining rigs just to generate heat for the house. And if I can come close to breaking even, Hey, that's free heat for me. That's all I want from it. And, and, um, no, wait, uh, are you serious? Oh yeah. I mean, is that is that a serious thing that you could buy what would normal people would call these servers, you know, really really big CPUs? Oh, it's not even normal servers. <laughs> they're they're optimized um computational engines. And um at some, and heat your house with it? Oh my gosh. Yeah. Oh my gosh. This is so wrong on so many levels. One of the listeners of the show sent me a link to somebody he knows who who spent um, about six figures uh, putting together a, a rendering uh, farm or a, a, a computational farm for for mining. I don't think it was Bitcoin. It was something else because there are literally a thousand. Um, actually, there's a lot more than that. Cryptocurrencies. And um, I got a hold of this person, asked him some questions and was reading um I watched a video interview this person did, and he was talking about the the problem of when you have this many compute clusters running, because he, he was running in his house at first, and this was during the summer. He says the problem you run into isn't trying to put cooler onto these servers, it's taking the heat off of it. And of course, at the time of year I'm looking at this, it's like, oh, this could actually be a good thing. <laughs> if, yeah. if these things generate, and he's putting, he, I think he said he had a 400 amp service, so this was a commercial power setup. You can't do what he was doing here in, in your residential house. But you're running 400 amps of electricity through a a bunch of graphics cards, basically, and and churning through and doing computations for this. And I'm thinking, okay, he's actually making almost five figures a month on on, on what he was doing. So he he was he was saying that maybe in the next couple of years he might be able to break even and go and go cash flow positive on it. And I'm looking at this, thinking the amount of electricity you're turning into heat. That if I could get away with free heat during the winter, I think I would be there. I think I would do that. So, I mean, I'm, I'm joking, of course, I wouldn't because that's a massive, I think that would cost ten dollars to $20,000 worth of, of um, Bitcoin mining equipment that I have to set up and plus probably have to get an upgraded um, power feed. Um, I don't think mm-hmm. my house power circuit would actually supply enough amps to be able to run something like that. Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's completely tongue in cheek to talk about powering your, your or to heating your house on, on Bitcoin, but the amount of electricity required for these computational systems, you literally could. I mean, oh it would gosh. take a lot less electricity to run space heaters all throughout your house. I can do that right. on my current uh, electrical uh, connection to my house, but I don't have enough electrical power to run one of these Bitcoin mining systems or whatever Monero, Ripple, whatever whatever he's doing. So wow. it, it's, I mean, it, this is not this is not hyperbole by any sense, saying that that it's completely crazy the amount of electricity, and that's going to catch up at some point. And yeah, granted, the electric companies love this. Because just as we're getting to the point where everyone's getting more energy efficient, we're using less electricity, we're going to solar power on, on your home and wind power and all the rest, along come these cryptocurrency people to save the day and drive up demand and start you know justifying building new power plants. And I saw that, that down in uh, Georgia, I think they just authorized the first two new nuclear plants nuclear, yeah. Yeah, at, at the Vogel site down, down in Georgia. I've been a big nuclear power proponent for a long time. So that's a good thing. I mean, me that, too. Me too. It, it's yeah. zero carbon and very solid, high, high uh, efficiency base load to the system. Um, yeah. But it's more stuff like this is going to be authorized and be, be said to be a good thing as we go forward. So 
uh, the majority of it's not going to be nuclear. It's probably going to be coal. It's going to be a lot of uh, two-stage natural gas. It's going to be geothermal and other pipe dreams like like hydro, which you know yeah that works for a while, and then you kill fish and people complain. So yep. Oh well, live and learn, live and learn. Well, super nerd, I think we should call it a show. This has been really interesting. I was going to say this. This is this is a fun way to wrap up 2017. If you have Bitcoin or cryptocurrency, sell while you still can. <laughs> Well, yeah, it's still exactly. worth something before everyone realizes it's a scam and it's not worth anything. Uh, yeah. Because unlike your, unlike uh, feeder cattle, it once if the if the market goes to zero, you really have nothing at that point. Yeah, it can go to zero and stay at zero. Believe you me. And I think we should put in the show notes. I we I think we should uh, put the link to the the funny YouTube video from the JT Spiritual Guy about Bitcoin because oh, yes. he's always really amusing. Um, you should put that, and you should also put. Just for context, his um, his gluten free video, which is hysterical, absolutely hysterical. He's, he's got a <laughs> bunch of really good ones: gluten free, veganism, and one one of my favorite um, quotes from this Bitcoin thing uh, that, that this video he did. He said, "Being Bitcoin, being a Bitcoin advocate is the veganism of the financial world." Which <laughs> and, and exactly, and he says, "If you've ever met me, you know I'm a Bitcoin enthusiast, and if you've never met me, it's the first thing you're going to hear about me because that's what I'm going to tell you." <laughs> And then I'm going right. to, and then I'm going to berate you for not having Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> if you would have bought last week, you would have tripled your money by now. Wrong. <laughs> and of course, Bitcoin is secure because it's never crashed to zero before. So therefore it never will. It never will. <laughs> oh, fantastic. All right. Well, let's wrap it up, my friend for the year. Indeed. Indeed. And like I said, we, uh, I don't have any, any, um, New Year's resolutions per se, other than um, <laughs> other than it being a better better chance of, of uh, starting a new podcast next year than this year. But um, no, this has been a this has been a fun experience. Um, I, I've never hosted or co-hosted a, a podcast before, and this is that was kind of, I was kind of um, uh, intimidated to do it at first because it's like okay, you can just riff it about things off the top of your head, and I didn't know if I if I'd be able to even keep pace with it. So this has been a fun experience, and uh, I look forward to doing a lot more in uh, 2018. Well, you're doing a fantastic job and the world waits with bated breath for the super nerd podcast. And there's a lot of really cool people that you've told me that you kind of have on a, on a list that you're working up for um, your own podcast. So we, we are all encouraging you in this and you do a fantastic job. And as always, I just, I just can't say thank you enough for you doing this because if it weren't for you, I wouldn't be doing this because you enjoy doing all the things about, you know, podcasting and recording and posting to the internet and so forth that I find difficult and tedious. So oh, you, yeah, the, you actually get really excited about those things. Oh, yeah. So. Yeah. We, we, had, we had a, a discussion long before we even recorded the first one where I was telling you what kind of, you know, microphones and minimum thresholds and things like this. And you kept regaling me about all the, all the stories when you would call into the, the cattle marketing uh, radio programs on AM from your cell phone. And I was explaining, yeah. I was like, yeah, but you were, your voice was still going through $20,000 worth of audio processing gear when it, before it hit the airwaves. So it's not quite the same. Anyway. Yes. I geek out about it. Go figure. Um, so <laughs> let's, let's wrap it for 2017. Uh, general reminders. If you have feedback, comments, questions, um, suggestions, what should I call my other podcast? It's not going to be hammer of truth. I, that much I've set aside. I've got a couple of working titles though. I think that make a little more sense. Uh, email addresses, podcast at barnhart.biz. If you are a benefactor of Anne, there are masses being set for you four days a week, Monday through Friday. And if you died the previous week, well, you're not hearing this, but there's a mass being offered for you uh, and, and your your uh, your soul. Um, please pray for the priests offering the, these masses and join your intentions with them. 
Uh, this podcast is a Super Nerd Media production. If you'd like to learn more or support the project, you can learn more about that at supernerdmedia.com slash donate. And that's a site that actually works now. I, to much to my chagrin, I've been working more on keeping your site going, and I just realized this afternoon that that page had problems. So I, I made a, an update on that, and um, I'll be updating the rest of that site soon. Um, the Diabolical Narcissism DVD is still available. The webpage on Anne's website is linked from the top of the site, and I just updated that this week so that uh, all through the different uh, topic points throughout the page, Rather than just saying, here's the time point where it begins, there's now a link where you can click on it, open a new tab, and jumps right to that point on the YouTube page. So more for your enjoyment there. Um, Also, the Matthew Matthew 1720 initiative. Uh, Please consider fasting twice a week for the resolution of the current issue with the papacy in Rome. Um, Indeed. You you don't have any any parting thoughts or ideas for uh, resolutions or revolutions for 2018? You know, it came to me just recently um, I'm going to stop drinking. I'm going to, I'm going to teetotal because it occurred to me and I'm, I'm not kidding. I'm being completely serious about this. You know, the days are getting dark. Um, I think that there is a, there's a very, there are reasonable odds that anti-Pope Bergoglio is in fact the false prophet forerunner of the antichrist. And it occurred to me that our Lord and savior, Jesus Christ could return in glory at, at any time, you know, the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night And it occurred to me that I want to not, I want to be absolutely certain that I am completely, totally sober and ready to go. Be sober, be watchful. Be sober, be watchful, literally, literally. And I think it's time to not, to not drink anymore. And I am not that I was, you know, having any sort of a problem or anything, but, you know, if you if you have a little bit of wine with dinner and whatever, what happens if our Lord returns and you're not 100 percent, you know? So I think and I'm here I am making this commitment publicly on the podcast. I think that I'm I think I'm going to call it a career in terms of imbibing alcohol. And I am going to wait in in literal, complete, total, assured, 100 percent all the time, total sobriety, not ever impaired in any way so that if our Lord does return, I'm, I'm ready to go, man. I'm going to be ready to jump out of bed and run out the door and have a completely and totally clear body and mind and be ready to go. I would, so, I would say just don't call it uh, teetotaling because it's my understanding that teetotalers refused alcohol because they thought it was morally bad. In oh, the same sense that vegans stay away from meat because they consider it morally bad. That's not why St. Francis was a vegetarian. He was abstaining from the good for the greater glory of God. And I think that's where you were going with this. But just in case anybody exactly. heard you say teetotaling, because you really did say it, that's not what you I meant. I did. I did. Okay. I'm glad you corrected me on that. So, um, yeah, just give, giving up something that's really, really good and just doing it and preparing. You know, I... I really think that we seriously, seriously need to be preparing. I mean, super nerd and I are always talking about go to confession, go to confession, you know, do what you need to do, move, get where you need to be so that you can go to mass multiple times a week, if not every, if not every day, um, you know, do all these things. I think it's time to really start clamping down super, super hard I, I have a feeling that, you know, just looking at the at the way things are progressing in Rome and with this anti-papacy and everything, um, you know, it's foolish to make any sort of predictions or anything. But I think 
I, I think it is completely reasonable to say that we need to be hyper, hyper vigilant and hyper ready for serious, hardcore, supernatural stuff to go down. And um, that means that means clamping down and, you know, be sober, be watchful, be be vigilant. And I'm, I'm committing to that. I'm I'm I don't want to be caught. I don't want to be caught in any sort of a compromised position at all whatsoever. So there you go. And, and if doing something similar sounds like a good idea, uh, keep in mind that you don't have to go to 11 like Anne's doing. You can, you, you can, rather than cutting out everything, go to one glass every two days or one glass of wine on Sundays or oh, whatever, sure, whatever sure. Your, your temptation is, you know, dark chocolate only on Sundays. Mm. Uh, do it in stages. Um, for example, we talk about the, the Matthew 11, 17, 20 initiative. You do the full mm-hmm. fast for 24 hours. That's a little aggressive for some people. Try fasting, you know, like a, a, a standard Lenten fast, you, you know, the, collect, right. the two half meals and then one meal. Um, the, the point is that you're making some form of self-denial. And if mm-hmm. you are a, a super stud and you can do a full 24 hour fast, then go for it. You, you, the more you offer up the, the it's, there is going to be some reward there unless you brag about it, in which case that's a different snor- different problem entirely, but yeah. make the steps toward, um, a, a more mortified, more rigorous, um, attitude, not because the things that, that, uh, you're imbibing are necessarily morally evil. Um, just no. because you're, you're, you're depriving yourself of, of a legitimate good for the greater honor and glory of God. That's where the merit comes from. Indeed. And Hey, that reminds me, super nerd. One of the first shows we should do after the new year, there's some really interesting scientific stuff to discuss about fasting and the benefits of fasting. And I think that we could get, we could get a good half hour, 45 minutes out of that. I always love, I always love it when science confirms you know, articles or aspects of the faith, you know, and with fasting, that's totally the case. It's so good for you. And all kinds of really interesting things physiologically happen to you when you just abstain from eating food for X number of hours, your body kicks into these really cool kind of overdrive, uh, immune overdrive and things like that. So that's really cool. And I think we could do probably a, a half a show on that. Um, maybe a full show because I could probably do half a show just based on what I know from having done the ketogenic diet for uh, the better part of a year, actually better yeah. part of two years at this point. And, and, uh, it's, it's definitely something where you check with your doctor before you do this, but yes, the, you, you can, uh, easily do, um, get, I'm going to save it. <laughs> it's a great topic. Let's do it. All right, cool. It's a date. Awesome. Well, until, right. until 2018, I am super nerd. And I'm in. Thanks guys. God bless. God bless.